Hello and welcome to Management for Startups. Management for Startups is about learning management in small teams, businesses and organizations between 2 and 150 people. My name is Cedric. This podcast is never longer than 15 minutes, so let's get started. Today, I want to talk about a technique that I call finding failures early. And this technique mostly applies when you are transitioning. Either you are an experienced individual contributor and you're becoming a manager for the first time. Uh, This is something that we've talked about a lot before on the podcast. But also the situation where you are an experienced manager and you're entering a company for the first time or you're an experienced manager and you're transferring uh, within your startup from one department to another department. Uh, And I think one of the things that we all know is that uh, in any human organization, there there are unspoken things tacit knowledge uh, processes that is not you know that, that aren't actually written down there's also little political gotchas that might affect the way that you do your work and every time you make a transitional period in your career when you are jumping into an organization especially if you are a manager and especially doubly so if you are a middle manager where you have to manage up as well as manage down you can find yourself sort of really stuck in political situations or situations that you're not familiar with and so this technique was a technique that was accidentally taught to me by my boss when I first moved to Vietnam, I think some of you know that I managed the Vietnamese engineering office for a Singapore company. Uh, I've mentioned that multiple times on this podcast before. Um, and so what happened when I first arrived in Vietnam, when I agreed to you know the job, was my boss sent me down and warned me about burnout. And he didn't just mean burnout in the sense of working really hard and then burning out, right? He meant in terms of country burnout. And the reason was because he was burnout. He had been running this company in Vietnam, um, flying back and forth between Vietnam and Singapore for, I think, about five years at that point. My memory could be failing me, but around five years, it's a sizable amount of time. And he was really burnt out on dealing with Vietnam. Um, And there are multiple reasons for that. Uh, Part of it is that Vietnam is messy. Uh, The systems and the uh, government doesn't always work the way you want it to. You do have to be careful to, to not be cheated by various vendors and suppliers that you talk to. Over the next couple of years as I was in Vietnam, I experienced some of these things firsthand, right? Some of it's just really weird things like um, you you hire someone and you have a job interview set up. Not hire someone, sorry. You're looking, you had a job interview set up and then five minutes before the expected Skype call, um, the, the candidate uh, messages you on Skype and says, hey, I'm so sorry, I can't attend because my grandfather died. So I have to go back to my hometown. And my reaction to that is, uh, over time, I you know I just began to just laugh, right? Like, okay, cool. Um, I'm so sorry to hear that, and I don't have to talk to you anymore. Like, okay, it's very clear that maybe your grandfather didn't die, but I got this from enough candidates to think like this was like a common excuse to try to get out of something that they didn't want to. And you can imagine to a certain type of person, um, my my friend likes to say that you know to a New Yorker, for example, um, the person would explode and say like, why are you wasting my time, right? And to a different person from a different professional, cultural background, like from someone from Singapore, which is fairly professional, uh, this could be very unacceptable and this could grate on you. And you can imagine that over time, like it's a death by a thousand cuts, uh, lots of lots of these ridiculous scenarios to sort of just wear you down and then you'll be incredibly burnt out over living and working and operating in the climate that is Vietnam. Um, and so I... Be- became very aware of this uh, problem. And my boss did a really good job warning me, right? Because he did 
the nice thing and said that, hey, you know, you should watch out for this. And so what I did was over the next couple of months, I hung out at bars. I, I went for expat meetups and pub crawls, all with the express interest, um, sorry, express intent of trying to get stories out of them. I wanted to ask them about how long they've been operating here. I wanted to ask them stories of doing business in Vietnam. I wanted to find out like those who failed, those who, who gave up and went back, right? Why did they do so? How did they burn out on Vietnam? And I began to hear stories, right? I began to hear the story of the guy who came in here, wanted to start a company, and then eight months later left because his landlord cheated him of a lot of money. Um, I learned the story of this woman who came here and she wanted to start a design agency, but she couldn't take uh, the inefficiency and the constant negotiation and the constant, you know, you have to, I call it like have your shields up. You have to have your shields up when you're doing business um, because otherwise people might take advantage of you. And either you get used to that or you don't. And eventually over time, I began to see that um, people uh, would burn out on the order of three years. Right, I eventually called this the expat horizon. It was my phrase, my name for the phenomenon where people have a certain number of years that they can take. And it's different for every country. Uh, but in Vietnam, the, year, the number of years that I heard the most was three years. You either can take it only for three years and you give up and you go back to your home country, or you can survive three years, which means that you can get used to living and operating in Vietnam with the culture and the language and everything. And then you can possibly be there and operate there for as long as you want. So if you survive three years, and this is sort of what I internalized, I could, I knew that then if I could survive three years, I could be there and be a good operator forever. Um, and the second thing I did was then I began to hunt down people who had successfully adapted. And this was a lot easier once I knew what I was looking for, right? So eventually I found out that the expats who managed to stay and operate and run businesses in Vietnam successfully were one of three kinds. First, either they had a lot of money and, and they, you know, spend that money to put themselves in a expat bubble where they just hung around with other expats and talked to other expats and went to expat bars and ate expat food and expat restaurants. Um, basically, you know, live in their own little bubble. That was the first way that they coped. Second way was to truly adapt to the local customs and learn the language and embed and make lots of local friends and basically be Vietnamese in, at heart. Um, and the third one, the third approach that I saw that I thought was probable was to uh, take it easy, like get used to it, get used to the local environment um, and make sure to learn and laugh at yourself when something ridiculous happens. And ultimately, what happened was I adapted a bit to Vietnamese culture, which was the second way, the second path, and the third path as well. Where like I learned to laugh at myself whenever something ridiculous happened, like when someone from the accounting firm said, you know, took our money and ran away with it, and then the accounting firm asked us to pay the same amount of money again, and it was a sizable sum of money. Um, you know, you just learn to laugh and let be, right? Laugh and then you know fight back or argue back against these sort of things. But, you know, you just accept it as part of doing business in Vietnam, right? But the general form of this lesson, the general form of this lesson is that my boss accidentally taught me through this experience was go and look for people in the same situation as you. In, either, in this case, it was similar um, foreigners who are working in Vietnam and running businesses. Look for people in these similar situations who have failed or who are about to fail or ask them if they, you know, they are successful, if they've heard of people who have failed in this role and then ask for stories about this. Eventually, over time, after you ask enough stories, 
you can pick up on certain patterns, certain political gotchas, certain uh, annoying things with that particular career path or that particular role in the company. And you learn to then start to search out or be wary of such, you know, gotchas. So I'll give you another example, right? And this is uh, an example where I didn't fare, I, did, I didn't do so well. So I've been learning content marketing for about two years now, right? And one of the things that I did was I started freelancing for a friend's content marketing company. And about a year ago, I listened to this talk online by uh, this woman named April Dunford. She's a fairly experienced and very successful chief marketing officer in various startups that got acquired throughout her career. And she specializes now in product and company positioning, right? And in one of her talks where she was sort of talking about all the lessons she learned in her startup marketing career, um, one of the things that she joked about at the start of the talk was how often marketing people, especially CMOs in startups, would get kicked out, would get uh, pushed out and blamed for you know, the lackluster performance of the product or the lackluster sales performance of the product. And she sort of just made this quip. Um, I think it was like only three or four sentences where you know, this is a common thing. You see this pattern. Somebody got fired as a CMO and then now they hire you and bring you in and expect you to fix everything. And I should have realized that this was an example of a story of someone who had failed or a very common failure scenario for CMOs or marketing people in the startup context. And I should have investigated further to see what were the gotchas that led to such a scenario? The fact that she could joke about it and to a room full of startup people and have all of them sort of laugh knowingly meant something important, but I didn't pick up on that. And so what happened uh, is that n over the next couple of months, I've been doing this content marketing thing for about a year now. Results, it was a bit more difficult to demonstrate results from the particular brand of marketing I was doing, which was content marketing, right? And I, had, I didn't really have to manage anyone in this scenario, but I began to extrapolate, right? I began to realize that uh, as the company that I was freelancing for and helping out with, it was my friend's company, so it was a lot easier for me. But I began to realize that they were being dissatisfied with the kind of marketing that I was producing, and I began to extrapolate that if I was a CMO and I had to hire a team, I had to be a, manage, a marketing manager for a company. Um, not that I would, but you know, I, as I'm building this skill now, because I'm building a business and I need to learn marketing, uh, this is a common gotcha that I'm, I'm, I am now aware of, right? This is something that I have to think about. And, and if you are a CMO and you're a manager uh, in, the, in the marketing context, in a startup, and you hire it in, this is also something that you have to deal with, that you have to figure out, that you have to see if the organization that you're going into has the right sort of mindset for marketing. And not all organizations do. Some organizations are incredibly sales-focused, like my previous company, and some of some organizations, some companies, like my previous, my, my, my current friend's company, is very product-focused, which is a different way of thinking and looking at the world than the marketing lens. So use this technique to your advantage, right? A common variant of this technique is to ask people, if you know what you know now, Right? What would you have told yourself earlier in your mark in your management journey, right? And the answers to that could be really uh, insightful. Um, one example of this I remember was a friend who worked in an event management company, and one of the managers at his company, right, came from a product management role. Oh no, so, sorry, I think it was the reverse. There was an event management arm of the company and then there was a product-oriented arm, which was basically uh, they put out a database of companies uh, in the region along with their funding, you know, basically 
uh, company intelligence, right? And this person had transitioned from the event management side of the company as a project manager and events manager into the product-oriented role. And now he was dealing with designers and he was managing programmers, right, as a, in a product uh, uh, role. And he said uh, that one of the things that he wished he had known earlier was that in an events role, right, when you are running an event and anything that goes wrong has to go to you. Right. You have to know your things and you have to be willing to order people around because if the caterer is late or a speaker is not here, right, you have to make a snap decision, you have to run with it or the entire event falls apart. And so he's very used to being in this sort of like a militaristic um, command, uh, bark instructions and have everybody run and carry out instructions, no questions asked. And when he tried to bring that from the events management side of the company to the product management side of the company, he was very successful in the events management side. He realized that in the product management side of the company, right, his style of leadership didn't fly at all. Right? Programmers and designers are more consultative. Um, the style there that people are used to in, in the entire industry, really, is that they expect product managers to be uh, the bridge, the bridge between business and design UX, basically, as well as engineering. And the job of the product manager is to sort of be the mediator that balances between the needs that are often conflicting between these three uh, departments, these three functions in the company. And so he came in with his uh, belief that his approach to event management would translate cleanly to product management, but it wasn't the case at all. And it was incredibly painful for him and incredibly painful for his team uh, to deal with this transition. So I think that's something to leave you with. I think I've given you enough stories here to sort of see how this technique might be useful. Learn from my mistakes. I think I did pretty well when I first moved to Vietnam, but I then didn't do so well when I was trying to transition to a content marketing, um, when I, I mean, freelancing role. And when you freelance or when you do any job, you want to do a good job, right? Um, I should have sought out examples of people failing in that role and learning from them, but I didn't. And so now... I have to learn the hard way. All right, so that's it for this week. I'll see you two weeks from now. Cedric out.